Hey everyone. As you know, I'm a huge fan of living a healthy lifestyle, including taking the right supplements. Collagen is one of my favorite supplements. It is the most abundant protein in the human body. As we grow older, we break it down faster than we can replace it. This loss affects our skin, nails, hair, muscles, joints, and tendons, bones, and gut, making us look and feel old. Totem Voss is a wellness company that created a collagen chew for a real-life person, the 78-year-old mother of the founder. As a result, the quality is unrivaled. Totem Voss chews contain equal part deep-sea Icelandic cod, domestic grass-fed beef, and organic chicken bone broth, along with companion ingredients such as vitamin C for full collagen synthesis. These varied sources address a greater range of collagen needs within the body. Their customers are reporting results with such problems as rosacea, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, degenerative disc disease, as well as improved hair, skin, and nails. Practitioners are finding the juice to be an effective tool in restoring gut health. You can find Totem Voss, that's T-O-T-U-M-V-O-S, at getchews.com. That's getchews.com. Use code DRDIVA, that's D-R-D-I-V-A, for an additional 10% off your first order. You cannot be an embryologist as I am without also investigating epigenetics and understanding the epigenetic as well as the genetic inheritance, frequently both being loaded with traumatic experience. And how do we differentiate from that? How do we find the original brilliance that is our embryonic force of life. That's really what my work is about. Hello, this is Dr. Diva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. Today, I am joined with Dr. Stephanie Mines. She's a neuropsychologist whose unique understanding comes from her academic research as well as her extensive work in the field. Her stories of personal transformation have led many listeners to become deeply committed to the healing journey. Dr. Mines understands shock from every conceivable perspective. She's investigated it as a survivor, a professional, a healthcare provider and as a trainer for staffs of institutions and agencies. Her blend of Western and Eastern modalities offers the best of both paradigms. She's devoted to end the lineage of shock and trauma for individuals and the world. She's a program director of the DOM Project, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing alternate health options for a broad spectrum of populations. As director, she's responsible for disseminating information to communities in need especially people suffering from illness that result from shock and trauma, survivors of domestic violence, families and children, and people living with neurodiversity, including autism and other sensory integration challenges. Her books represent an overview of her mission to create a bottom-up, empowerment-based, sustainable health revolution. These include We Are All in Shock, New Frontiers in Sensory Integration, and most recently, They Were Families, How War Comes Home. Dr. Mind's coming book, is Memoir of an Embryologist, How I Discovered the Secret of Resilience, will be released in 2022 from Inner Traditions Sacred Planet Books. 
See her website, www.terra-approach.org for more information on the unique method of Dr. Mines, specifically called the Terra Approach, combining an ancient Eastern energy healing technique with Western neuroscience. Dr. Mines currently resides and teaches around the world as well as mentors clients online. Hi, Stephanie, how are you? I'm doing well, how about you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm really looking forward to our show today. I've taken on trauma and healing through various modalities of trauma, very, very personal. And I'm really excited to see your approach and to understand how you you have been so brilliant in in the way that you heal people and uh, facilitate the healing process with many of your clients. Thank you. And personal is my specialty. I really appreciate that you emphasize the personal component because I believe that formulaic approaches really re-traumatize. And so my emphasis is always on the personal. Yes. And so how did you get started on this whole journey of becoming a trauma specialist and you know, I read a little bit about that in the bio, and I just want to hear more about what is what you went through personally and, and how you took a, a whole path of becoming a specialist in this field. This is really a remarkable story, even though it's my own personal story. I am still impressed with the ways in which I was brought onto this path because I never really intended to become a trauma specialist. My dream uh, as a child was really to be a writer and a dancer. And I am still a writer and a dancer. But what evolved in my life literally put me as a wounded healer on the path of becoming someone who offers resources and healing from trauma to others. So I'll try to condense the story. It really occupies virtually all of my books, uh, and I tell it in a variety of ways. I will give a thumbnail sketch. I come from a family of immigrants, so people who were already struggling uh, in America with not having English as their first tongue and having um an immigration background. And my father was someone who had experienced a head injury as a child. And being uh, from an immigrant family where there was lack of understanding about head trauma, lack of ability to communicate to medical professionals, He was never really treated for that head trauma, though everyone was aware that his behavior was markedly different from his siblings. So I discovered this from my grandparents when I was inquiring into my father's really violent behavior. My father was also uh, a serviceman. He was re-injured in the military. When he returned from military service, his violence was exacerbated considerably. So he was abusive. He was abusive, particularly to me and my mother. Uh, And he was verbally abusive, physically abusive, sexually abusive. 
And of course, it's impossible to not be significantly marked by that kind of environment. And I addressed it as a youth through creativity. That was why I was so intent on being a writer and a dancer, because it was through those creative, expressive outlets that I found some sanctuary for the suffering that I was experiencing and that was pretty much kept secret within the family structure. But as my life unfolded, I encountered different people, different opportunities that led me to shift from a humanities emphasis in my education. Uh, I already had a master's degree in literature and writing when I was led and it felt really circumstances were pulling me onto the path of undertaking a doctoral program in neuroscience. So this was quite an undertaking because, as I said, my background was in the humanities and I was entering uh, a whole other realm of study and inquiry. But remarkably, I loved it. And I was amazed that I had a proficiency for this material, um, even though I expressed myself largely in poetic ways. So as this unfolded, I was led, and this is one of the remarkable events of my life. I was led to do a doctoral internship with people who had experienced traumatic brain injury. And it was at that time that I put everything together in terms of what had happened in my own home and in my personal life. And the understanding that my father was acting out of traumatic brain injury put everything into perspective. It took the personal onus off of me. I ended this quest to find out what was wrong with me that my father had abused me in this way. What had I done to create that? That whole tape was ended with the understanding that I was dealing with someone who was sick and had not received the proper treatment. And the family structure was condoning that by not investigating it. Um, that is out of ignorance, out of lack of awareness. So that's not said in a blaming way. It's said from the standpoint of consciousness that I had when I became a neuroscientist and that I didn't have before. So my whole world shifted. And, you know, what I found was that this individual who is me really has an incredible heart of service. So when I learned what I learned about my father's head injury and how it impacted me and my entire family and the circumstances around it, and I did actually my internship, my dissertation, all revolving around traumatic brain injury, which is such an important topic right now, as I'm sure you're well aware, the discovery of traumatic brain injury in athletes, for instance, which really sheds light on many other people who, unbeknownst to them, are suffering from the ramifications of traumatic brain injury. So I became committed to 
not only being a professional in my field, but in spreading the message at a grassroots level. That has always been a distinctive passion of mine. And that's why I've done the work that I've done with survivors of domestic violence, for instance, uh, even starting a shelter uh, for women survivors of domestic violence, when I realized how important a role the awareness of head injury plays in understanding how violence of that magnetism magnitude occurs. So that's a thumbnail sketch. There's so many other component parts. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, but that gives you the, the gist of it. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I really want to get into a little bit more about trauma and shock, which is your expertise. So can we start off by like by actually defining what trauma is and what is shock? Yes, this is another uh, really passionate topic of mine is conveying to people at every level that there is a distinction between trauma and shock because the tendency is to lump them together and they are significantly differentiated. So trauma is a fragmentation, a uh, point of breakage within the human nervous system that results from an overwhelming experience that creates a shattering impact, but from which recovery is possible, is generally given some compassionate interventions, it is possible to recover from trauma fairly soon, particularly if you can address it shortly after it occurs. So one of the metaphors that I use is, and, and it's applicable in this time of so many natural and unnatural disasters like loss of power. So you lose the power in your house, let's say. And that is shattering, that's distressing. It's happened to me um, in my rural location and it's really ungrounding and confusing and disruptive and, and shattering. You can't, can't follow through with what you wanted to do. Everything shifts, but then there's a remedy. And there's a remedy sometimes in a few hours, sometimes in a few days, maybe a week later, there is a remedy and power is restored. Shock is another level of burden. So if we use the uh, formulas of the ACES evaluation, for instance, this would be a very high score on the ACES evaluation. So this is that the power has not only gone out in your house, it's gone out in your town. It may even have gone out in your state, your region, and maybe even your country. So if we look at Haiti right now, for instance, where the entire country is struggling to have power. That would be an example of shock. Or we look at what happened in Puerto Rico during Hurricane Maria, when the entire country was cut off from all medical care. So people who were reliant on medical technology had no access to it. That's shock. So shock is multifaceted, multidimensional burdens, high allostatic load, 
placed on the human nervous system, on all the resource structures, and the remedy is not so easy to find. It doesn't happen in a few hours. It doesn't happen in a few days. It may not happen in a month. So that level of shock creates another path of healing than would be the case with trauma. So for instance, I've developed a beautiful four-step approach to resolving trauma, but that four-step approach doesn't work for shock. You need more scale, literally. It's a higher scale, a higher order of magnitude to recover from shock than would be needed to recover from trauma. So if I'm understanding correctly with shock and trauma, I want to try and clarify. Can you experience shock without trauma? Yes, you can. Absolutely. You can experience shock without trauma. Uh, They also can go together in the sequencing of the trauma. So if you have one trauma that is not resolved after another trauma that is not resolved, the cumulative effect would be shock. And so with your earlier definition of trauma, it appears that there is some sort of resolution that can be remedied rather quickly if addressed. However, in what you're just stating, if it's not addressed and resolved quickly, then it can lead into a tumultuous path of shock. Excellent. Yes. So true. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, this is news to me because I I never really correlated the two together. You know, I've, I've done a lot of research and reading about trauma, you know, specifically trying to understand my own trauma to help myself and others. But it, it's interesting because I have always felt um, that shock is sort of like a more deeper trauma. I think it was the book, The Body Keeps the Score. I never say his name, the author's name. But um, that's yeah. it. Yes, yes. And I, feel, I think he defines various levels of trauma. And then when you reach the lowest level, the, the, the bottom level of trauma, you know, it's where you're in this catatonic state, which I assume is equivalent to shock. Your state of consciousness is uh, somewhat compromised and your senses and emotions are compromised. And it's until you get out of this level before there's any level of intervention that can take effect. So that is valid and useful, but I would amplify it considerably. And I would amplify it. And this gets back to the very first thing you said, Dr. Nagula, which is the personal approach. So one of the things that I emphasize in the teaching that I do, which is available to everyone, I do not only focus on teaching professionals. I have this passion for grassroots healthcare education. And one of the things I focus on is education about the difference between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. So what you just described, that catatonic state, that would be, from my perspective, evidence of parasympathetic shock. But I, for instance, have seen and myself experienced the opposite, that someone carrying an incredibly high load of shock, a high allostatic load, can be super functional. And that would be sympathetic shock. 
So Mm. that person might be aggressively active. That person might be highly productive. That person might even be somewhat manic in that productivity and needing to stay at that high level of output. That would be sympathetic shock. Now, it would seem to me that most people are in a sympathetic state of shock who have some sort of trauma, right? Because they're functional and they essentially repress a lot of these issues that are just buried underneath, right? And so it's the, the, it's the people who are catatonic that are in the parasympathetic shock. They're the ones that are just not functional. They might be institutionalized or on heavy doses of medications where they're not a functioning member of society. Yes, and I sincerely believe that in that case, and also in the case of a sympathetic shock, which is harder to identify because one feels successful. We live in a culture that rewards sympathetic shock, that in both cases, recovery is entirely possible. One can find equanimity. One can find the balance within their nervous system, which is going to be unique to each individual. If provided with the appropriate resources and provided, and this is the key, and it goes back to that word personal, with the relationship that delivers those resources to that individual in the way that that individual can feel seen and heard and tracked. I call that attunement. And it's a key piece to everything that I do. Hey, Dr. Diva here. Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all have helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in oncology, cancer, healing, and medical ebooks, and number 21 in all of the Kindle store. You've also helped us hit number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. If you haven't received your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksatmillion.com. Visit from doctortopatient.com to become part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. If you like our book and podcast, please go to amazon.com to write a five-star review and go to Apple Podcasts to also write a five-star review on this podcast or any of our episodes that you've enjoyed. We need reviews to attract and secure top-notch guests for this show. Thank you so much for your support. This is a new definition that I'm learning today about sympathetic shock and parasympathetic shock. So I don't know if that's something that that's your definition, that's your, you coined it. I love it because it makes sense to me. And I would just add, you know, for people who are listening, that sympathetic shock to me, what that means is that people are in a state of fight or flight and they're in that high functioning. They're the ones that are amped up, they're manic. You know, these are the people that we see, you know, on a day-to-day basis and we just associate them as functioning at a very high level not even functioning at a high level they're at a high level because they are able to get stuff done in a productive manner but it is an overdrive their sympathetic nervous system is taxed their 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 nervous system is literally on a level where 
they can just be tipped over the edge and have a total nervous system shutdown. So let's uh, chat more about this. I mean, before we go into that, I also wanted to ask, is your approach to assisting people with these two different categories the same, or do they require a complete different sense of approach in dealing one or the other? I wouldn't say it's a completely different approach, and I also wouldn't say it was the same. So again, uh, the attunement to the individual is a key part of what I teach and what I make available to everyone. I do differentiate in terms of interventions between how one would deliver resources to someone who is sympathetic versus someone who is in parasympathetic shock. But the resources have a similar quality. So the resources that I offer are both language and applied touch. So I have a profoundly somatic approach to the resolution of shock and trauma. Now that's the name of my program, the TARA approach for the resolution of shock and trauma. Uh, these resources work with both. And the resources are a hands-on system that is self-care-based. So I am all about empowered healthcare. So I make available to people interventions through touch that they can use on themselves. And what a boon in a pandemic era when people are restricted in terms of their ability to access medical resources, and a lot of those resources are now online, you can treat yourself with remarkable results. I also provide an understanding of how language, and that includes, in fact, there's an emphasis on the language that we're delivering to ourselves. So our inner Dialogue, dialogue. Our, our inner tapes that repeat and that we keep secret and that we hide from other people. How can we engage and change those tapes out completely and forever? So the combination of the touch with this understanding of the role of language creates an entirely new way to reformat, recalibrate the nervous system, whether it's sympathetic or parasympathetic dominant, the recalibration can occur using these simple human approaches. So I, I want to dig into both language as well as touch and how that's self-administered. These are really important, but my question in terms of the language, you know, People who have trauma can be any age. And say, for an example, a person is, is in their 50s and they have a significant amount of trauma, their language that they use that's the, that comprises their inner dialogue, it's, it's pretty set in stone because it's a routine that they've been living with for 50 plus years, right? So how do you go about changing where it is a process that can be remedied to the effect where their language has shifted because you're, you were so ingrained into our patterns, right? You know, the neuroplasticity 
with this particular approach is difficult because we have the same firing pattern that creates the same routine of thoughts. So how do you, what's your approach and how you change, you know, the pattern so that you can achieve neuroplasticity and actually go down different paths in your brain to facilitate healing and change? Beautiful question and such an important conversation for everyone listening to tune into and recognize that this neuroplasticity is our birthright. So you're right. When you're 50 plus, uh, the challenge may seem to be greater to change these habituated neuronal firings. And yes, it is an axiom within neuroscience. You know, what is wired together, fires together, and interrupting that neuronal consolidation seems daunting. This is where the hands-on piece plays a big role. So the hands-on self-care treatment that I deliver in all of my programs, and these are available, as I said, to everyone. You don't have to have a medical degree or a doctorate. Uh, my programs are open to everyone. It's a unique component of what I offer is this accessibility. The hands-on self-care, which can be delivered to another person, of course, um, but I emphasize the self-care. I also teach parents, for instance, how they might be of service to their children uh, or grandparents, how they might be of service to their grandchildren. And I emphasize very much healing in community where we can provide under safe conditions, hands-on treatment to others. But the hands-on piece, whether received from another or self-care, intervenes somatically in the nervous system in a remarkable way. And it would require a whole other interview, which I'd be happy to have, to talk about where this touch system comes from. I learned it directly from an incredible woman who is now my ancestor, she's no longer alive, Mary Eno Burmeister, taught me this system, which she brought from Japan. And she learned it from her teacher, who's a man named Jiro Murai. So there's a whole story there that uh, we won't have time to go into today. But what is true of this system is that it is simple easy to use, easy to learn, but remarkable in its impacts. And I have tested this on myself. It's part of what led me to become a neuroscientist. I have also clinically tested this, Dr. Nagula. I have done clinical trials with traumatic brain injury, uh, with autism, with stroke, and with aphasia. So these clinical trials have shown that this hands-on approach, which is a gentle touch approach, has a significant impact on reorganizing the human nervous system so that it comes into symmetry, into balance on its own. So it's innate this recalibration, this plasticity that is available to us is innate 
in our development. And that's the topic of my new book uh, that's coming out in 2022, which is Memoir of an Embryologist, because the neuroscience that I have studied led me to investigating neurodevelopment. And through that investigation, I really came to see the brilliance of this hands-on system that was imparted to me. Uh, and I have so much gratitude. Uh, now, I, I, I know we're, we don't have all the time, but I'm very curious for uh, this somatic self-administered trypotrauma healing, more so for myself, you know, and obviously, you know, to give information out to people that are listening to the show. But can you touch upon some, some main focal points? Because this is an area of interest because I've been doing a lot of research on my own. And I have a lot of clients that I see. And for me, what I've noticed and what I have come to the conclusion that true healing of an individual takes place if you mitigate inflammation and then if you also resolve trauma. So the two things together, you can heal pretty much almost anything. But it's the trauma piece that I'm, I'm still looking to further my, my development of learning modalities so I can help facilitate those who have chronic disease that are stemmed from inflammation and trauma. What I've, in, I've done is I've employed psychedelic therapies for clients. And recently what I've done is also implemented some type of body work where I'll have a massage therapist or a somatic body worker right after the psychedelic session to help release anything that is coming up that was stored in the body. This is just my own experimentation. And I know there's more to it and, and there's no, there's a reason why you and I have connected. So there are no accidents. So yeah, I'd love to learn a little bit more. Yes. And of course I am more than happy to share everything that I know with you and with others. That's why I'm here really is to deliver these resources broadly. And I am in total agreement with you. Trauma and inflammation go hand in hand. And I would, go beyond that even to say that the nature of the cultures that we inhabit, they promote both trauma and inflammation. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it takes this groundswell of people like you. And I, I just want to say how much I respect your emphasis on your own self-care, uh, that you are vulnerable and open and willing to identify with the healing process. That is the path of the wounded healer. Uh, and you are absolutely right. We are meant to be linked and collaborating in our work. So what I can tell you about this hands-on system is that it arises out of an understanding of embryology and it arises out of an understanding of neurodevelopment. So as we evolve prenatally, the influences in the environment, the family, the culture that we inhabit already begin to penetrate uh, and establish patterns that can lead to inflammation. And we compensate brilliantly we are all miraculous beings who find a way very early in our lives to compensate for the threats 
which are traumatic and inflammatory so that we can manifest who we truly are in the world where we are born. If we can understand those compensations that were always created on a precognitive level and rewire them, that's where the heart of the neuroplasticity becomes possible because we can go to the original construct and see it as a compensation. And in that consciousness, consciousness is essential. I emphasize and believe in human consciousness and the evolution of human consciousness. And it's what I rely on to deal with this incredibly complex and sometimes seemingly suicidal world that we inhabit. So by going to those original compensatory formulations and rewiring them using consciousness and appropriate touch in areas that are designated because we learn in what I teach, we learn a map of the body, we learn sites on the body that have specific functions in regard to neurodevelopment. And by making contact with those sites that are holograms for these compensations, we begin to open them almost like opening a multitude of power centers in the body. And when we combine that with the consciousness of the fact that these were compensations, that these were impositions, then the neuroplasticity becomes available much more quickly than if we went through years and years and years of psychotherapy. Uh, and so if, if, you know, if I can use this awareness that I mentioned at the beginning of understanding my father's head injury, being responsible for the way he brutalized me, that consciousness was the beginning of opening me up to knowing that I was not that shock, that I was not that experience, that was not me, that was something that opened a portal of understanding uh, that really gave birth when I became a neuroscientist. So you touched on a couple of things. So one is regarding the trauma. So the methodology that you spoke of doesn't necessarily have to deal with a specific trauma. So whether it's domestic abuse, whether it's a loss, anything of that sort, you can still have results by the method that you've just elucidated. Beautiful. And, yes. Okay. And then secondly, if this is all something that we're going back towards our embryonic times, you know, in the prenatal development, so what if there is trauma that is coming to us, not in our lifetime, but through our DNA, right? So then we're really going to that root of the problem in the, and, and that's when we're the embryo, right? So there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of stuff that we're inheriting through uh, the DNA from our mother and from our father that is taking place as we're growing in our mother's womb. 
So if it makes sense to go back to that specific time in our life to address the healing process to take effect. Absolutely. I'm in total agreement. You cannot be an embryologist as I am without also investigating epigenetics and understanding the epigenetic as well as the genetic inheritance, frequently both being loaded with traumatic experience. And how do we differentiate from that? How do we find the original brilliance that is our embryonic force of life? Yeah, That's really what my work is about. It's all pre-trauma, right? So that's all, I mean, not pre-trauma, pre-acquired trauma. Exactly. From from living this life. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, this this is really fascinating. You know, I might have to dedicate a whole other show. Maybe we can do a part two on on this aspect because this is really important stuff. So. I would love to do that. Yeah. I'd be very happy to do that. We'll talk more offline, but as we um, dive into this show further, you know, I still want to discuss more about the Terra method and your work with the climate crisis and how trauma and climate crisis, you know, works together. Well, as you are likely aware, the climate disruption that is unavoidable right now, I mean, even as we speak, there have been these horrible tornadoes in Kentucky Uh, that everyone who understands the meteorology of it knows that this is a climate disruption event. Uh, We we can't escape from the prevalence of climate disruption. And I would consider the pandemic an aspect of climate disruption as well. So that is taking trauma and shock into every home in the world. So... I have a lot to say on this topic. And uh, as you know, I started a sister organization to the Tara approach for the resolution of shock and trauma, which is climate change and consciousness. And these two organizations work very closely together because those of us like you and I, who have addressed recovery from overwhelming conditions, we are first responders. If we can empower ourselves as healthcare advocates in a climate crisis situation, we have so much to offer. We have so much to provide to the general population on how to prepare for climate crisis. Right. And and that being said, is this more of an approach to prevent you know, those that could be suffering from future climate crisis? And is that a different approach from people who've already suffered? Both. So I, because of my background and because of my heart of service, I am intent on preparing people at the grassroots level for the disruptions that will occur in their families, in their lives, and in their communities as a result of climate crisis and all that is related to it, such as pandemic conditions. So I think the medical system is broken. Uh, It still has resources that are remarkable, particularly for crisis conditions, critical care, but in terms of delivery for people in families, for 
what is needed in a community, it is a broken system that we can't rely on. And so I am intent on what I call regenerative health for a climate changing world. I am intent on imparting these same tools that allowed me and all the people who I have served and all those in my clinical trials to regain equanimity and beyond equanimity, to become capable of being unprecedented leaders as a result of the health within their nervous systems and within their evolving intelligence to be of service to everyone around them. So I am committed to disseminate these resources, not just for people who are survivors of sexual abuse and domestic violence, areas where I've done a lot of service, but for people who are completely destabilized by climate crisis. Mm. You mentioned how the healthcare system is quite broken, and I think it's very broken when it comes to mental health issues. Uh, specifically dealing with trauma. I mean, there are parts of our system, our healthcare system that are fantastic. And that's with the advent of all this technology that we have, in addition to how, you know, we have people that can put a broken body back together again, right? So those are some great things about our healthcare system. But without taking into consideration, I mean, what, how do you envision a proper healthcare, you know, for the present and for coming generations? Beautiful, beautiful inquiry. And I don't think I could do what I'm doing uh, in this environment if I didn't have a vision of exactly what you're describing. And that is a vision of healing and community. That is a vision in which individuals at the grassroots level are in the center of their healing process and are empowered to be resources for themselves for their families and for their communities, and that they consult with medical authorities or medical technology when necessary, but that we have a fusion of Western medicine and traditional healing resources. So I am doing my best to assemble what I call a cultural library of regenerative health resources. And I refer often to circumstances such as what happened in Puerto Rico when Hurricane Maria struck. Initially, there was shock and people were devastated. You know, people who were reliant on technology for their well being, diabetes, other life threatening conditions that they could not address because there was no access, communication cut off, power cut off. What happened eventually was that the parteras, the curanderas, the people who had been trained in traditional healing methods that are time-tested and successful, they began to come out of the woodwork and they began to help their community. And once again, they discovered that these traditional resources, indigenous resources, resources that have been tested for thousands of years are effective. It's not that they negate the need, for instance, for a stint or 
the kind of technological intervention that is remarkable and for which we're all very grateful, but they can prevent the need for that if those interventions are used in a timely and sensitive, and I would say attuned way. So the future of healthcare as I see it is based on grassroots empowerment. It's based on healing in community. It's based on putting a high value on educating people to access their innate healing capacity, their innate neuroplasticity, the innate capacity that we all have that is our birthright to restore balance even after overwhelming experience. That's what all my work is devoted to. Yeah, and I, I, you said it beautifully. I could not agree with you more because I've always thought about this too. And I, not to mention thought about it. I mean, I'm craving, I'm craving communities and I'm putting together communities with healing centers and different healing modalities. And as you mentioned, there's no reason to kick out Western medicine from our entire being. We don't want that. It has its place and it, and it, and it is very effective given the right situation. However, you know, there's a lot more preventative care and there's a lot more healing that can take place within the confines of a community. It's all about feeling safe and, and having a safe environment and feeling safe. And that's super, super important because I think a lot of people, specifically in the last two years with this pandemic, are disempowered. And so I really feel that regaining, reclaiming your power is a huge part of the healing and will allow people to feel safe again. And I think this is definitely something that can be expedited and can be nourished through communities. And um, that's kind of what my quest is, is, is really putting together communities and also you know, establishing healing centers that encompass you know, various modalities of healing you know, that aren't pharmaceutical based and that have, just, that, that have been tested and tried in the past. And it's really going back to the way the indigenous cultures and how they lived, you know, it's all community-based. Um, and, you know, you're talking about regenerative and that's how we need to live is through regenerative agriculture and, and through various means um, to help our own healing take place. And being alone is really, you know, it, it is an awful, awful uh, risk factor. I mean, they say that Isolation and loneliness are huge risk factors for mortality, more so than uh, diabetes or smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So that tells you right there, you know, where the problem is. And so I, you know, I'm really in agreement, and it's you know great to see that you know you think the same way, and uh, we do think alike. And so it's it's uh, refreshing to see. So I really appreciate the work that you do, and uh, really glad to have you on the show. And for our listeners. If people are interested in finding out more information about you and your books, where can they do so? www.tara-approach.org. Excellent. And uh, yeah, I'll, uh, we'll talk to you offline about possibly doing a, a, uh, a part two. I'd love to. Thank you so much. You're very welcome.